Amen. Friends, would you open up a Bible with me to Matthew chapter 12? Matthew chapter 12. We are finishing Matthew 12 this morning. As we finish this text, we finish another section of Matthew. A little, we've been in a, a narrative section telling a story of increasing rejection of the King of Kings. And then we'll get into Matthew 13, where Jesus begins speaking in parables, another section of his teaching. What we've seen so far in Matthew 11 and 12 is increasing rejection by the Jewish leaders and by the crowds of Jesus, which is quite remarkable if you think about the, the story of the book of Matthew, right? We began with such promise where God has been faithful generation after generation to bring all of his promises to fulfillment in King Jesus. There ought to be rejoicing. There ought to be mass acceptance. There ought to be, there ought to be mass conversions happening. And yet what we see is this king come and bring his kingdom into a world that is consumed with darkness. A world that is trapped. And the people, particularly the people of Israel that are actually no better off than their forefathers were. We saw just last week Jesus casting out a demon, and then the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders of the day, claiming that he did this by the power of Satan. And Jesus saying, no, it's by the power of the Spirit of God that I cast out these demons, and therefore the kingdom of God has come upon you. We saw that there is now no neutrality, because it's either belonging to the kingdom of Satan, or belonging to the kingdom of God. And Jesus pronounces woes and condemnation rightly on the enemies of God. And then they do what you would expect. And what maybe you yourself have even done. In the hardness of your own heart. They say to Jesus prove it. That's essentially where they come in this text today. Is they say to Jesus give us some sign. That this is true. Give us some proof. That you are who you claim to be. And that you have the authority to do what you say you do. Jesus responds to this cry to prove it. By demonstrating definitively that he himself is God's greatest sign. This is going to be the main focus of our time in this text. That Jesus himself is God's greatest sign. There is no other sign to be given and when Jesus says that he's going to give him the sign of Jonah, he's saying he's going to give him himself. And we'll see that as we go through. We'll explore this idea that Jesus himself is God's greatest sign. And then we'll see two implications. One for the Pharisees and one for the crowd. That flow out of this idea of Jesus as God's greatest sign. And then we'll see at the end, thankfully Matthew does not leave us on just a downer. But he gives us a small story that acts as a parable of hope. For any would-be disciples. So as we read through the text. See if you can start to see some of those things. And then we'll look more closely together. Let me pray for us one more time. And then we'll read Matthew 12. 38 to 50. Father I pray that you would help us. To see Jesus. He is your greatest sign. That everything you have said. Is true. That everything you have said. Is for your people. He is the one we want to and ought to believe in. And so I pray that you would help us behold him as we go through this text. I pray that in our dim eyes and our, our 
muffled ears and our, our cold hearts, that you would, you would awaken our sight and awaken our hearing and that you would till the soil of our hearts and make it receptive to the gospel of Jesus Christ and that we would rejoice in what we see and be made more like him. Would you meet us with everything that is needed this morning? We do not live on bread alone, but we live on every word that comes from your mouth. And so I pray that you would speak and we would live. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew 12, verses 38 to 50. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given it, except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of the person is worse than the first. So also it will be with this evil generation. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. We see, first of all, in verses 38 and 39, this word sign keeps reappearing. And if we're going to argue, as I think the text does, that Jesus himself is God's greatest sign, it's important we understand what Matthew means here by sign, what the, what the Pharisees mean by sign, and what Jesus meant by sign. So what do they mean? I think it's important, first of all, for us to note that the Jews as a people had a miraculous worldview. So it wasn't merely something happening that's out of the ordinary. Okay, Like they and those around them all viewed God as providential over all creation and able to work miracles. And there were miracle workers in Jerusalem. So it wasn't merely a miracle. Casting out demons, notice, wasn't enough. And Jesus doesn't say, look at the sign of me casting out demons. Okay? They had exorcists in their day, like we talked about last week. They did it differently. And that was a sign that Jesus was different. But that was not what they meant. What they're looking for when they say, give us a sign. They're looking for undeniable proof that something or someone is from God. Okay? A sign, undeniable proof that something or someone is from God. Think of the Old Testament and think of the dramatic rescue of God's people from Egypt, right? There were signs that were done that God was rescuing his people, not Moses, right? All of the plagues were signs. All of the, 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 the things that happened as Israel went out, as the Red Sea was parted, 
as God led his people through a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud. These are signs. As they came to Mount Sinai and the whole mountain erupted with thunder and lightning. This is a sign that God is speaking from heaven and that his people ought to listen, right? This is what the scribes and the Pharisees were asking for. They wanted something like this to prove definitively that Jesus is from God because he said, I cast out demons by the spirit of God. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is upon you. Therefore, your refusal to accept this kingdom means condemnation. And they said, prove it. Prove it. Jesus says, no sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. And it's important then for us to ask the question, what is that sign of Jonah? What does he mean? He says right in verse 40, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. It's not that hard to think about what that's referring to, right? Clearly, that's talking about Jesus' death and burial. And by implication, Jesus' resurrection, right? The fact that Moses was vomited out of the fish and onto dry land and then went on to be a prophet to the people of Nineveh means that it's not just his time in the fish, but the fact that he was in the fish and passed through the fish onto dry land. And likewise, this is talking about Jesus' death and resurrection. But it's much more than that. Think about the prophet Jonah for a second. We, it's been a while since we read through the book of Jonah together, but we did earlier this year. Remember what Jonah's ministry was like as he went to the people of Nineveh. He didn't want to preach to them. Why? Because he was worried that they would repent and be shown mercy, right? It wasn't that jo- jo- Jonah was all that upset about the judgment upon them but he was worried he knew that god is merciful and he was worried that god would show mercy to the ninevites jonah in his pattern of his ministry was called to preach to the ninevites who god intended to show mercy to on their repentance so that israel would be made jealous in other words jonah was feeling exactly what what God wanted him to feel and exactly what he wanted the rest of Israel to feel. Jealousy at God's mercy towards those people who were not his people. Right? Now think about the ministry of Christ. What is he doing? In bringing mercy to sinners, both Jew and Gentile, he is provoking the leaders of Israel, those who are at the heart of God's people, to jealousy. Paul writes about this. In Romans chapter 10 and 11, when he talks about the gospel going forth to the Gentiles, he says, why was this done? So that the Jews would be provoked to jealousy, that they would see God's mercy to a people that he has said, you are not my people, but I will make you my people. And that they then would turn and want the same mercy from God. When Jesus says, I'm going to give you the sign of Jonah, he's saying my ministry will be just like Jonah's in provoking the people of God to jealousy because of the gospel going out to both to, to the world, to the nations, to Gentiles. It's this pattern that he's picking up. It's also a pattern of preparing for judgment. In God, preserving the people of Nineveh from destruction in Jonah's time, that prepared the way for the Assyrian people to rise up. And what did God do with the Assyrians? 
He exercised judgment on his rebellious people in the north. Right? In showing mercy to Gentile people, God provoked judgment for his people because of their rejection of him. They were an evil and adulterous generation. And God used the Assyrians to judge them. And this is what Jesus is also doing in bringing this gospel to sinners who will repent. He is, by implication, and sometimes by direct speech, even in how he speaks, think of the woes that he says, bringing judgment on the rebellious people of God. Just like Jonah did. When Jesus says, I'm going to give you the sign of Jonah, he's saying, my ministry will be in the pattern of what God did through prophets like Jonah as well. It's deeper than just death and resurrection, although it's not not death and resurrection. It's so much more. We see this also in this theme that Matthew has brought up a couple times in Matthew 12. And that's the theme of Jesus being the fulfillment of all patterns and pointers in the Old Testament. We see this through the words greater than. We saw this first back in Matthew 12, verse 6. If you look back there, you'll see... Jesus is talking about the Sabbath, and he says in Matthew 12, 6, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Something greater than the temple is here. And in our text, we have two more greater thans, right? In verses 41 and 42. We see in verse 41, something greater than Jonah is here. And we see in verse 42, something greater than Solomon is here. And we should ask ourselves, what do these three things have in common? The temple, Jonah, and Solomon. These are not accidental uses of the words greater than. These are really significant and important. What do they all have in common? They're all Old Testament references, right? We know that. Temple being given in the law. And Jonah being a prophet. And Solomon being a king and responsible for much of Proverbs. We see in this... I think two aspects of Jesus being this greater sign, being this fulfillment of all of these patterns and promises. We see, first of all, the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament promises, right? Matthew's been writing this way. This was done to fulfill this, right? We've seen this over and over in Matthew. So we should expect it again. And notice what Matthew does here. He says, Jesus is greater than the temple, The temple origins and all of the rules about the temple are in the law. The first five books of the Old Testament. And then he says Jesus is greater than Jonah. And Jonah is a prophet. The second division in the Old Testament. And then he says Jesus is greater than Solomon. And Solomon is representing wisdom. The writings, the last division of the Old Testament. Here we have the three divisions of the Hebrew Old Testament. How they would think about their Bibles. In saying this, Matthew is saying Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these patterns and promises. Not just Jonah, but everything else that points to him. We see this also in the pointers of the three offices that Christ fulfills. Temple having to do with priests. Jesus is the greater priest, right? Hebrews unpacks that all over the place. We see also that Jonah being a prophet, Jesus being the true prophet, the greater prophet, the one that's coming speaking on behalf of the Lord. And lastly, we see Solomon as the apex in some ways of the kingship of Israel. And here we have Jesus, the true king. 
In writing this, Matthew is saying that Jesus is greater than the temple because he is the lamb here who takes away the sins of the world. He is both the priest and the one who offers the offering. And we see Matthew saying that Jesus is greater than the prophet Jonah because he himself is the word of God incarnate. The true speech of God telling God's people what they ought to be doing and the good news of God's rescue. And he's the greater one than Solomon because he himself is here as wisdom personified. We see that in places like Proverbs 8 and Colossians 2. All of these things are mounting up a case that Jesus is God's greatest sign, God's greatest evidence that he is who he says he is and that he's fulfilling all of his promises. And on the peak of all of that is the three days and three nights, the death and resurrection of Christ. It's the peak of a majestic mountain that dominates everything around. And just because you don't like you, yes, believe the peak, but look at the rest of the mountain. All of this adds up to say that Jesus himself is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. And that's what Matthew is arguing. And that's what Jesus himself is saying. As he speaks to these Pharisees and says, look, if you can't see in me that all of this is true, then you're not going to see it in anything else. There's no other proof to give. Jesus is God's greatest sign. It's not that God won't provide more proof. It's that he can't. There's nothing greater to show them. There's nothing greater to help them see this truth. God won't detract from God, his greatest sign by giving something else. He instead will keep pointing to his son, keep pointing to the death and resurrection of Jesus. This means for us that the death and resurrection must be at the center of everything we believe. This Jesus, as the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament promises, must be at the center of everything we believe and all of our efforts at evangelism as well. It's ultimately about wrestling with this one central fact of history. Did Jesus really rise from the dead? Nothing else will be sufficient to prove that God's sovereign workings through Christ have come about. Nothing else will be sufficient to prove that God is indeed rescuing a people for himself if you refuse to believe the resurrection. Because this is the greatest sign. This is the greatest evidence that God is doing what he's doing. As Paul says, Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. This is the reality of our faith. Because Jesus is God's greatest sign, there are a few implications then. And that's what he gets at. He says all this in order to say a few things to the Pharisees and to the crowds. The first thing we see in verses 38 to 42 Because Jesus is God's greatest sign, therefore rejecting Jesus is exceedingly evil. Okay, it's not just that Jesus feels personally offended, like he is the sign that God is fulfilling all of his promises if you merely turn to him. And turning away from him then is exceedingly evil. Jesus' strong response to the Pharisees comes from their rejection of him as God's greatest sign. Not really from their seeking a sign in the first place. It's not that God is unwilling to give signs. He often told his people to ask him for a sign. It's that he's given this sign and the Pharisees say, you are from the devil. And because of that rejection, Jesus responds very harshly to the Pharisees. 
Peter Lightheart puts it this way. He says, behind their apparently innocent request for a sign is lust for another husband. Right? He's calling them an evil and adulterous generation. Adulterous primarily doing with faithfulness to who they ought to be faithful to, which is Yahweh, God. And instead of wanting to be faithful to God, they are seeking another husband. In doing this, the Pharisees prove that they are an evil and adulterous generation, just like their forefathers. This language of evil and adulterous generation is used to talk about Israel. This is not accidental language. This is not Jesus just seeking for something, some way to describe them. This is Jesus saying, you guys, you're just like Israel. You're the same state you were back when your forefathers lived and you said, no, we'll do better, but you're not. We see these two words brought together most clearly in Hosea chapter 3, verse 1, where Gomer, Hosea's wife, is called a lover of evil and an adulterous woman. And the story of Hosea is a story of God calling one of his prophets to marry an adulteress so that he can act out in his marriage God's pursuit of his adulterous people. Jesus is drawing on this and saying, you're just like this, guys. It's just like when God brought his people up to the cusp of the promised land. Remember in the book of Numbers? He brings them to the promised land after, after all of these signs, rescuing them from Israel, or from, from Egypt, excuse me, bringing them through the Red Sea, right? Leading them by a pillar of cloud and fire, mountain flaming and thunder and lightning, giving the commands. And then he brings them up to the edge of the promised land and they send in spies. And what do the spies find? The land is good. And filled with scary enemies. Listen to how God's people respond in Numbers 14. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry. And the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them. Would that we had died in the land of Egypt. Or would that we had died in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. What's the problem? They're not believing the clear signs that God has given them. That they will be rescued by God. That he has led them into a good place. We read in verse 5, Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, The land which we passed through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. But the glory of the Lord appeared in the tent of the meeting of the people of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? Exactly the same as these Pharisees standing in the presence of Jesus. Only... Jesus is a greater sign. Jesus is better than a parting of the Red Sea. Jesus is better than a flaming mountain. Jesus himself is the greatest sign. And just like the people of Israel of old, these Pharisees are now responding to that sign, refusing to believe it, gathering up stones 
trying to figure out a way to murder him because they do not want to listen. In doing this, the Pharisees prove themselves not only children of their fathers, sons of Israel, the rebellious, adulterous bride, but children of Satan. Satan himself, remember, was the one to demand a sign earlier in Matthew. If you are the son of God, turn these stones to bread. If you are the son of God, jump off this high tower and let God rescue you. If you are the son of God, bow down to me. Show me a sign. Prove it. Therefore, their rejection is exceedingly evil and worthy of condemnation at the time of judgment. This is why Jesus says the, the, the people of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment and condemn you because they believed on less. The queen of Sheba came to listen to the wisdom of Solomon and something greater than Solomon is here. You are worthy of condemnation. All who reject Jesus prove themselves like these Pharisees to be adulterous brides and Jesus renders a judgment and is guilty. It is exceedingly evil to reject Jesus. I think we ought to be clear about that in our own hearts and as we talk to others. This is the truth. Because Jesus is God's greater sign, not only is it exceedingly evil to reject him, just flat out turn away and want nothing to do with him, it is also exceedingly dangerous to be indifferent to him. This is, I think, the point of this little story in verses 43 and 45. Looking at this story of a demon going out and then coming back in and a house being swept might seem strange to you. It did to me. I'm like, how do these connect? Did Jesus just go off on a different tangent or what? But when we think about it, verse 43 starts off when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person. And what did Jesus do during his ministry? What did he say to find the fact that he was here as the king of heaven bringing his kingdom? He says the fact that he casts out spirits by the spirit of God. He casts out these demons by the spirit of God. Everywhere Jesus goes, demons are removed, right? Demons are cast out. Evil spirits are pushed away by his very presence. All it takes in Matthew 8 is for him to come on shore and the spirits are there down begging him not to cast them out into the outer darkness. Everywhere Jesus goes, he casts out demons and demons flee. And so everywhere Jesus goes is somewhere that the unclean spirit has now gone out. Gone out of a person. But Jesus' point in telling this story, I believe, is found in verse 44. Because he means it as a warning. He says, then the spirit says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Swept and put in order are not bad things. But empty is not good. Empty is the key here. Empty, as Frederick Brunner calls, means there's a house in danger of a haunting. Think of it like banishing darkness in a cave. If you walk through a cave with a torch, there's going to be darkness that flees everywhere you bring that torch, right? Everywhere you go, darkness will flee. But when you leave that space into a different section of the cave, the darkness is going to come back. And if you're left there standing in the darkness, just like when you flip a switch on at home, right, and then flip it off, the darkness is going to be worse. It's going to be deeper. You're going to be more blind. Or, to use Jesus' words, there's going to be seven more evil spirits that come in and invade the space. 
Jesus has given Israel a temporary reprieve from the domain of darkness. As the light has come into the world, it has banished the darkness. But this temporary reprieve is temporary if Jesus does not remain there, right? As he moves on, as they want nothing to do with him, the darkness remains. It floods back with a force, with a vengeance, after Jesus passes on. Jesus offered Israel a temporary reprieve. He was not banishing all darkness yet. Right? We live in the already not yet. Jesus has brought his kingdom. But it is present where his spirit dwells with his people. Not universally yet. We look around and we do not see all things in subjection to him, like the author of Hebrews says. Those who would follow Jesus, though, are called to be filled with something. Not empty, right? To be filled with something. Take, for example, John fourteen twenty three. Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Or Paul's exhortation in Ephesians, to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Right? The presence of Christ ought to be with his people, such that the darkness is banished, and when the demon comes back, evil spirits come back trying to attack God's people, they ought to find the Spirit of Christ dwelling there. That's what Jesus is saying. They ought to find something there, not emptiness. This is Jesus again emphasizing this truth we saw last week from Matthew twelve thirty that there's no neutrality in the kingdom of God. There's no empty houses. Right? All of these people who are hearing and seeing Jesus, if they stand far off, indifferent, indecisive, just gathered to a crowd, they're going to be empty, and the evil spirits are going to come back and make their home in them. This may be at, through demonic possession, like we've seen, but it also may be just through false worship and false ideology that's not directly the possession of a demon, right? Like we saw last week, there's not that much of a dis- difference, I think, between those. There's demonic influence behind those. We are made to be worshiping people. And if we do not worship Jesus, we will worship something else. Calvin talks about the heart being a perpetual, perpetual factory of idols. We will manufacture more to fill the house if Jesus is not there. This is a warning Jesus is giving to the crowds around. That there are no bystanders. All who remain at a distance from Jesus prove themselves to be merely bystanding brothers, not actually part of his kingdom. And Jesus renders his verdict and says they are foolish. So he's warning as the greatest sign from God that God is bringing his kingdom to bear. All of his kingdom promises are coming to fruition in Christ. He's warning these adulterous brides. And he's warning these bystanding brothers and saying, you are broken. The family of God, those who were supposed to be the people of God are fundamentally broken. Their leaders are seeking after false worship and rejecting the true king. And their their people are led astray, moved by various winds and waves. Houses empty, ready to be haunted. This is not how the people of God were meant to be. This is not what the family of God was meant to be. And here, it's here with this realization that Matthew gives us 
a little parable of hope. There is hope to be found in Christ. And Matthew ends chapter 12 there with verses 46 to 50. You might not think this is related if we first read at it and we see it's just a story of Jesus' mother and brothers standing outside trying to get his attention. And then Jesus tells them, these disciples are my family. But it's so much more because what Jesus has shown is that the family of God is fundamentally broken. And here he is himself remaking it. And it's not how you would think. Notice what his blood relatives are doing while he's teaching. Right? The people who should belong to Jesus and should be closest to Jesus are actually far away. Those who would have a blood relative claim, like his mother and his brothers, but by extension, the people of Israel, the ones who are the children of Abraham, that can say, I'm a Jew by birth. I have a claim to the Messiah. Those ones are standing outside. They're standing, not sitting at Jesus' feet like they ought to. They're outside versus inside. In verse 46, we see, while he was still speaking to the people, he's still teaching. Behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. Notice, they're not doing what they ought to be doing, which is listening while Jesus is teaching. They're asking to speak to him. We don't know necessarily hear what they wanted to say, but we read in Mark that part of their concern was that Jesus was a little crazy. And so they wanted to kind of, hey, Jesus, you know, you're, you're really kind of upsetting these Pharisees by saying these harsh things. Maybe you want to tone it down a little bit. I think it's perfectly reasonable to think that they were making judgments on Jesus' teaching. These are the ones who belonged with Jesus and who had the closest earthly claim to him. But these are not the ones who define Jesus' true family. The family that he is making, he defines himself as creator. He has the authority to do that. Notice what he says in verse 49. Stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, here are my brother here, here here are my mother and my brothers for whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother the this is my family those who do the will of my father in heaven these are the ones stretching out his hand over his disciples he is benedicting them he is pronouncing on them this is my family these are my mother and my brothers these are the ones that are my family Because these are the ones that are seeking to do the will of my Father who is in heaven. What is the will of his Father? Matthew 17, verse 5, when we have the transfiguration, Jesus brings a few of his disciples up to the mountain, and his full glory is revealed before them. And the Father speaks from heaven, and what does he say? He says, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. This is the will of the Father. Listen to the Son. Listen to Him. Listen to Him. As we listen to Jesus, He further reveals the will of the Father, right? He's been telling us the will of the Father. What is it? Matthew 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What is the will of the Father? Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. John summarizes the will of the Father in John chapter 3 when he says God loved the world so much that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, 
but in order that the world might be saved through him. What is the will of the Father? That adulterous brides and bystanding brothers would come to Jesus and listen to him. Come and take his yoke upon them and learn from him. Learn that he is gentle and lowly in heart. Find rest for their souls. This is good news for the adulterous bride. This is good news because it says what you need to do is you need to come and you need to listen. This is good news for the foolish brother because it says what you need to do is come and listen. This is good news for the stubborn sister because it says what you need to do is come and listen. Right? All of this is come and listen for those who don't belong. Come and listen and be part of the family. For those longing for a home, come and listen. And be called my mother and my brothers and my sisters. Come and listen and find rest for your soul. Jesus certainly makes demands. But he doesn't make these demands first. He first makes a family. And then teaches them how to live in that family. This is the good news for you and I. That we can still, even if we have been adulterous. And even if we have been foolish. If we have been indifferent to Jesus, or even if we have rejected Jesus, there is still time to come and listen. The fact is that you and I would fare no better had we been there in Jesus' day. This is the greatest sign that God can give. And you and I like to think, man, if I'd been there, I'd do different. We know that's false, right? Or some of us are just eternally optimist and we don't realize it, but it is wrong. You would not do better. Peter denied Jesus three times, right? And we read the story and think, how on earth could he do that? With this sign so clearly in front of him. And yet we know the reality that we would fare no better. We ourselves must hear this good news to come and to listen. It's what Frederick Brunner calls the living faith of a repentant and listening life. And I love that. That's the Christian life. It's a living faith of a repentant and listening life life. Repent, come to Jesus, and listen. Do his will. The will of the Father, which is first and foremost to find rest in him, and then out of that grace, out of that rest, to pursue a new kind of redemptive righteousness that lives out the reality of the kingdom. It's sitting at Jesus' feet. It's listening to him. It's a daily apprenticeship with him. This is the Christian life, and the fact is that any who will do this Regardless of what you have done, any who will do this, Jesus welcomes and he puts his hand on you and he proclaims, you are my family. This is the good news of the gospel. Let us pray. Jesus, I pray that you would help us by your spirit to come and to listen. And that as we listen, that these truths would sink down deep into our heart. For some of us, it's hard to believe your declaration that you would make us family. For others, it's hard to come to you. As we feel driven away by shame. For others of us, we feel a hardness in our heart that says, I don't want to give up what I know that will cost. 
Lord, guard us from keeping what we think is precious and losing our souls. Would you help us, Jesus, to come and to listen? Would you help us hear the shepherd's voice and gather in his pasture? We thank you that you speak so clearly and that you give us so directly a firm foundation for our belief. And so I pray that you would help us respond for your glory and for our joy. Amen.